Let's bow our heads for a word of prayer. Dear righteous, eternal Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning with grateful hearts, and we thank you that you have given us victory through Jesus Christ, and I just pray this morning if there's anyone here that has not found that victory in you, that today they could find that victory and peace in their hearts. I just pray this morning that your spirit would empower Brother Lester as he shares your word. May our hearts be open to hear what you have for us today. I just pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Greetings to each of you and welcome. Thankful to be gathered like this again and to have God's word before us, the spiritual food that he has made available to us. And, and again, it is a, a privilege for us to have the freedom to, to gather like this and to study God's word. Many believers around the world do not have this. My sermon this morning is does seem to be overlapping quite a bit with our Sunday school discussion as well as the devotional. Um, I don't think that's a problem. I hope it's not a problem with you. Um, I wasn't quite aware of how much our Sunday school discussion would tie in with what I have prepared for this morning. My title is Love Your Neighbor as Yourself. I'm looking at Luke chapter 10, the parable of the Good Samaritan, and I'll tell you a little bit of why I'm, some of my thinking behind this and why I chose this and I've been preparing or thinking about this sermon for a number of weeks. Several years ago, I kind of transitioned from being deacon here to being lead pastor. And one of the things that I feel that that requires of me is to think more about what the vision is for our church here, what God wants for us today and in the future and, and in decision making the decisions that we, we make, how will that affect where, where we are at in 10, 20, 50 years from now? I've also been asked this question directly or indirectly a number of times. What, what is your vision for the church? So I've been thinking about that, and I feel like I need to be a little careful in, in what I say is my vision for the church because... I think the bigger question is what is God's vision for our church and how does my vision um, align with that? And, and maybe to use the word God's vision, I think may, might not be quite the right term. Maybe a better term is what is God's design for our church? Um, to God, I, the way I see it, it's not really a vision, it's, it's reality to him. He already knows all the future and he has it all planned out and it's all under his power. Um, a vision is the act or power of seeing or anticipating or mentally picturing that which will or may come to be. And, and I don't see God as, as really um, you know, trying to discern what the future is, trying to discern what, what we as a church, uh, what we should be doing and what our work is and who we are to be, because he already knows that. So it's God's design for the church, for our church, and how does my vision for the church align with that? We know that Crystal Valley Church isn't mentioned in the scripture by name, but it certainly does speak to us. We, we know that. So God gives us some general revelation in his word as to who we are to be and what we are to be doing and, and of what his design is for the church. But what's revealed here in scripture applies to all churches around the world in many different cultures and 
in many different times throughout history, as well as the future for as long as this earth remains. So it's given to us um, in more of a general sense, and sometimes the specifics are, are for us to decide. There's maybe more than one good work that we can be involved in or multiple things that we can do, and that's where God leaves us to decide at times what do we want to do specifically. So I'd like to look this morning at what I believe is, is one good, at least one good um, vision for what the church is to be as revealed in God's word. Turn with me to Luke chapter 10. <clears throat> and I'd like to read verses 25 through 37. This is a, an account that probably many of us have heard from little up. As it's a story that's in many of the, the Bible story books that, that I was um, exposed to and read as a child. It's not an unfamiliar story. But nonetheless, um, things here that we need to continually turn to and, and learn and remind ourselves of. Beginning in verse 25 of Luke chapter 10. Behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tested him, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He, which is Jesus, said to him, What is written in the law? What is your reading of it? So he answered and said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have answered rightly, do this and you will live. But he wanting to justify himself said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Then Jesus answered and said, a certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves who stripped him of his clothing, wounded him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a certain priest came down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Likewise, the Levite, when he arrived at the place, came and looked and passed by on the other side. But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. So he went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, and set him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. And on the next day... When he departed, he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, and said to him, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, when I come again, I will repay you. So which of these three do you think was neighbor to him who fell among the thieves? And he said, He who showed mercy on him. Then Jesus said to him, Go and do likewise. This lawyer came to Jesus with a question. What shall I do to inherit eternal life? And it tells us here that his motives in asking that were not necessarily right. He was testing Jesus. It was, I don't think he, he really um, was just genuinely wanting to know. But he, and if you look at this account in, in Matthew chapter 22 and in Mark chapter 12, it gives us a few more details that would make that clear as well, that he was, he was trying to trap Jesus. He wanted to um, outdo him. And the Pharisees and Sadducees were, were back and forth here with Jesus. And, and they were not able to, to really corner him. And, and so this man stepped up with a plan. So I don't think his intentions were right. But he asked a genuine question, what should I do to inherit eternal life? And I think that we ask God that question too many times, hopefully with better motives than this man had. 
not with the idea of trapping Jesus, but because we want to genuinely know how do we need to live? Uh, how do we receive salvation? And, and how can we be saved and have eternal life? And how does, how does God want us to live as we live for him, um, accepting the, the plan of salvation that he has for us? So in response to, to Jesus' question, the lawyer here gives the two greatest commandments. You should love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus commends him for this. That you, that's the right answer. You answer properly. And then Jesus, um, so that he asked Jesus a question, or Jesus asked him a question, and then he asked Jesus a question. But he, wanting to justify himself, said to Jesus, who is my neighbor? So he, he wasn't quite able to corner Jesus on the first question, so, so here's another one. Uh, who, who is my neighbor? And again, uh, so Jesus gives an explanation then, uh, expounds upon what this second commandment all means. And that's what, what I want to especially focus on this morning and thinking about what is God's plan for us as a church? What is our vision for the church? What is his design for us? As he expounds upon this second commandment and tells us what this looks like in daily life, um, I want to notice the different characters that are given in this parable and what they may represent. And again, I think we have the freedom to, to apply this in, in some different ways. It doesn't exactly say who each of these people can um, relate to in our lives, but um, we can understand that and we can have some freedom to apply that. So I have, I have um, each of these characters, these people in here, and who they who I see them as representing. We don't want to ignore the first commandment either, and we are going to come back and touch on that a little bit at the end, but, but right here Jesus is focusing on that second commandment in response to the question that the lawyer brought to him, saying, you know, who is my neighbor? Jesus is telling him, this is who your neighbor is, and this is what it looks like to show love to your neighbor. The characters in this parable, the first one we see is the thieves. The thieves that came and stripped this man of his clothing and wounded him and left him half dead. These thieves, I believe, represent Satan and his kingdom. We understand that Satan is, is a liar, is a thief, is a destroyer, and is interested in undermining God's work in any and every way that he can. So I see these thieves as representing um, Satan. This certain man who was traveling along from Jerusalem to Jericho and was attacked by these thieves. He represents, I believe, each one of us. We are that man traveling through life, and we will and are and have been affected by sin and Satan and his kingdom. Satan is interested in undermining and destroying our lives and has done that in various ways. He continues to tempt us and to seek to wound us spiritually. I understand this road from Jerusalem to Jericho was rugged um, through the mountains and was, was known to be a dangerous road to travel on, not unlike the journey that we take in life. We live in this world. Satan has been given authority here in this world. 
and he does attack us. Then we see two men here, a priest and a Levite, who came along that road and see this wounded man laying along the side of the road. I'm not going to spend a lot of time looking at the differences in, in the priest and the Levite. I'm not sure if that's all that important here. But both of them, we notice, are religious people, people who were called by God to, to serve in the temple, in worship. And both of them ignore this man. Both of them respond in the same way. They pass by on the other side. These two men represent a dead faith, as we talked about in our Sunday school. A faith, you know, we say we believe in this, but, but our life doesn't show that we actually do. These, this priest and Levite represent a dead faith, a vain religion, an appearance of godliness without any, any um, form, without any fruit. These two men are an example of what a church should not be. And then we have the Samaritan. The Samaritan came along. He was not a religious leader. Um, he was, the Samaritans were disdained by the Jews, by the priests and the Levite, would have not have wanted to um, get too involved with this Samaritan, be, get too close to him. They would have looked down on him. But this Samaritan comes along, and his response is totally different. I believe this Samaritan represents... Um, primarily represents Jesus, is a picture of who Jesus is to us. But as we see in the end of this passage that I read, it is also who we are supposed to be. When Jesus says to this man, this lawyer, go and do likewise, you go and do what this Samaritan did. The reason I believe it primarily represents Jesus is because if we are that certain man who, who is beaten down and wounded and left to die, we have no hope without Jesus Christ in the spiritual sense. We have no hope, as this man, too, had no hope unless somebody came to help him. So Jesus is a picture of the Samaritan. He comes and has compassion. He helps us, and we would have no hope without, first of all, Jesus Christ intervening in our lives, shedding his blood for the forgiveness of our sins. And then we have an inn and an innkeeper. The Samaritan brought this man, he took care of, of some of his needs at least, and brought him to an inn and then provided for his care there as well. So we have mention of an innkeeper. And I believe this represents who we are in the church. This represents the church, the inn, the place where Jesus wants to bring those sinners to be cared for. <clears throat> who are our neighbors is a question that we need to answer the question that this lawyer had for us what can we learn from this who are our neighbors Jesus made it very clear to this man that there was no excuses. I think maybe he was looking for a way to, to wiggle out of some responsibility. Jesus said, our neighbors are those who we see who have needs. Especially those um, whose life, whose spiritual life has been taken from them by the attacks of Satan. Our neighbors are simply those around us, those we cross paths with, those we see along the road who have needs. 
There's no other distinctions made here. We also notice that, that the, the cultural and racial differences are laid aside here in determining who our neighbor is. This Samaritan, I'm not sure what the, the race or the, uh, yeah, the race or um, ethnicity was of this man lying on the road. Very likely he would have been a Jew if he was traveling from Jerusalem. But it didn't matter here. This Samaritan showed compassion despite their cultural and racial differences. And how do we, how are we to love our neighbors? I'd like to go down through here and notice um, several different things that are made clear in how we are to love our neighbors. First of all, we see the Samaritan having, showing compassion rather than judgment, or compassion before judgment. It says he, when he saw this man, he had compassion. He could have probably cast some judgment towards this man. He could have, I don't know what all the circumstances were, but he could have easily said, you know, too bad for him. He should have been maybe traveling with someone else. He should have been, uh, had his weapon with him, keep these, it, these men away, these thieves, it's too bad he um, fell on the side here. I need to keep going. Could have said, no, he, he won't like me. He's the wrong race, the wrong culture, the wrong ethnicity. We're not going to get along. He made no judgments, but he showed compassion. That's how we need to love our neighbors is, first of all, compassion. And I thought of that verse in, back in James there in a Sunday school that mercy triumphs over judgment. Is that how it says it? I think it is. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Mercy always triumphs over judgment. We are, we are living in an age of mercy. We are here today because of God's mercy. God doesn't need to give us this time. God does not um, need to continue to give people in this world time to come to him. We live in a time of mercy. We have been shown mercy, and mercy is and compassion are to be our first response to others. See, our salvation is based upon the fact that mercy overcomes judgment. This is why we still have hope. Another thing I notice that happens here is there's the first two men that came along. It says they um, they pass by on the other side, but this Samaritan, as he comes along, he comes close to this man. He sees him. He came where he was. Think about that phrase as we relate to our neighbors. He came to where he was rather than passing by on the other side. He took time. He took a detour. He came close to this man. We too, in order to love our neighbors, need to come close. And that can mean a lot of different things for us depending on, on what the situation is. Sometimes not just physically close, but, but listening to them, understanding them, hearing them. Asking them about 
their needs, taking time for them, to come close to them rather than to pass by on the other side. A third thing this man did is he sacrificed for the man in need. He gave of his time, of his resources, the money in his pocket, the animal that he had with him to travel on. He took a, a pretty major detour in loading this man up and, and in taking him to an inn. There was sacrifice required in loving his neighbor. How willing are we to give of our resources, our time, and to take detours in life to love a neighbor? We also see that he provided care for both his immediate needs and his longer-term needs. As he found this man laying on, along the side of the road, he took oil and wine, he dressed his wounds, he bandaged him, and then took him, he took care of his immediate needs, and then took him to an inn where his longer-term needs could be met. And he provided financially for the innkeeper to take care of him there. In loving our neighbors, sometimes it requires immediate needs. Sometimes there's long-term needs, many times both. We need to look out for their long-term, as in the, the, the needs of their soul, their eternal salvation, their eternal soul, and what are those needs. I know we just were discussing this in our, in our men's class. We, we really covered this um, pretty well, but... Um, Again, this is a picture of, of what this Samaritan did in, in meeting the needs of his neighbor. And here's what we too need to do when we love our neighbor. To have compassion before judgment, show mercy, to come close to them, to take time, to sacrifice of our resources, and to provide for their immediate needs and their long-term needs. In my mind, when I think of what does God want us as a church to be, I like to think of a hospital. And this is not directly drawn out of scripture, but I think it's somewhat referred to here. When it talks about the Samaritan taking him to an inn, uh, it may well have been something similar to what our hospitals are today. They obviously didn't have the facilities like we do, but I'd like for you to think about this for a few minutes, how the church is like a hospital. For the most part here in, in America, we have it really good with our medical care, and we can go into a hospital just about anywhere, and our needs will be, we will be taken care of. If we have a physical need, um, if we need care, we will be taken care of. You think of a hospital and the, the variety of people that they may care for in there. It doesn't really matter whether it's a government official, whether it's someone off the streets. It doesn't matter what your social class is, what race you are. The, the reason why you're coming there, for why you're injured or why you're sick, maybe it was your own fault, maybe it wasn't, it doesn't really matter. They care for you. It doesn't even matter on your ability to pay for the most part. I know there may be some exceptions, but 
Um, they don't require you to pay the bill first before they take you into the emergency room. Care is provided for all. Hospitals are run by a diverse group of people with many different skills and gifts, uh, some trained especially in certain areas. If you spent any time in the hospital, um, you've seen this. There's doctors, there's special surgeons for particular things. There's, there's nurses, there's nurse assistants. There's office staff, there's janitors, there's counselors, there's chaplains. And they all work together for a common cause, and that is to, to bring healing to those that come there. In the medical world, I understand in, in medical training, there's what they call the Hippocratic Oath. I think I have that right. Um, and and it, I don't know how much that is actually used or applied today, but it goes way back to ancient times. And there's this, this oath made that you will do no harm, that in your medical care that you're giving, you will put the interests of the patient first in their well-being and caring for them giving life rather than destroying. In a hospital, good care requires sacrifice and hard work. You may have had different experiences, but for the most part, I think our hospitals, in my limited experience time in a hospital, I've seen doctors and nurses who genuinely care. They're not just there because it's a job. It's a rather difficult job if you're going to do that just for the paycheck. Many of those men and women sacrifice and work hard to make their patients feel better, go above and beyond what may be even required of them. A hospital, too, is a place that, that gives a lot of bad news to people. Sometimes the church needs to be a little like that as well. We cannot ignore the problems that people have. We cannot overlook their real needs. We cannot overlook problems with sin. Sometimes the church has bad news for its patients. And a hospital, of course, needs both a staff of doctors and nurses, and it needs patients as well. If there's no patients, there's a bunch of unemployed people. If there's no doctors or nurses, there really is no place to go for those sick. There's no health provided. And we in the church um, find ourselves in both of those positions. I think all of us will be, should be, in both of those. Sometimes, oftentimes, simultaneously. We're both caregivers and patients. We're both ones receiving care and giving care. I have had, I don't know if you call it a privilege or not, but I've, I've sat in an operating room as an observer um, on five different occasions when my children were born. And it always amazes me how, how the, the precision, I didn't necessarily spend a lot of time observing but, but I noticed this when, when I was in the operating room, and it stands out to me, the precision, the teamwork, and, and the, the, the focused attention that is given to the patient. You hear 
the doctor called for a certain instrument and, and his assistant um, or the, the nurse hands it that instrument, repeats the same word so that they know they're communicating properly. So the doctor knows that what he's been given, that the nurse has clearly understood him. They're very focused around that patient and, and there's doctors, there's surgeons, assistants, there's nurses, there's anesthesiologists. And, and in our case, with, with a baby, there's nurses there ready to care for that baby as well. So there's a lot of teamwork, a lot of very focused attention, and a lot of um, precision and work that goes on to, to make that um, a place where, where life is brought and where healing is given and where patients are cared for. It's a lot like that in the church as well. It requires a team of people and it requires focused attention on the matters at hand. So I like to look to think of the church as a hospital. And as we think of, of loving our neighbors, of caring for the needs of those that we cross paths with, that we see, the needs that are before us, the church is like a hospital. It's like that innkeeper. But then I'd like to notice one more thing as, as we look at the end of this story. Come back to what Jesus says here to this man in verse 37. Go and do likewise. This is the imperative. This is a command. This is a requirement. It's absolutely necessary. We need to go and do likewise. Here's where the people in the church become like Jesus, the Good Samaritan, where we go out and we too are Good Samaritans. And I think the easiest way to become like that Good Samaritan, become like Christ, is to follow the first command. To love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind. There's a reason why that is given as the first commandment. And your neighbor as yourself follows that. If we love the Lord our God with all our heart, then loving our neighbor will come easily, or more easily at least. That will, in a sense, automatically be the result of loving God, of loving that man who is like that good Samaritan, who came and rescued us when we were in need, when we were laying along the road wounded. I'd like to close with um, a couple of verses in Ephesians, chapter 5, verses 29 and 30 says, For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as the Lord does the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. When he gives the command that we are to love our neighbors as ourselves. What does, it, what does that mean? Well, naturally, we care for ourselves. And that's why he's pointing out here in Ephesians as well. No one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as the Lord does the church. This nourish and cherish has the idea of, of feeding, of, of keeping warm, of um, bringing life, bringing growth and maturity. Just like an infant, you take your child as a baby, you feed that child, you keep that child warm, you wrap him in a blanket. 
So, so picture a mother caring for an infant. That's what it says that Christ does for the church, and we do that for ourselves. We naturally make sure we ourselves are taken care of, and our bodies. That's what Christ does for the church, and that is what we are to do for our neighbors, to love them as ourselves and love them as Christ loves the church. Let's bow our heads for prayer. Thank you, Lord, that you bring your word to us. You reveal its truth through your spirit, through the reading of this book, the words that we can understand. You give us insight into our lives. You give us insight into the church, what you want us to be. You give us a design and a plan for your church. I pray that we could be faithful, diligent in this work. That as we see needs of those around us, we will respond like the Good Samaritan did, to take time, travel out of our way, to meet their needs, provide care for them. Lord, we, we call upon you to, to give us the strength to do this. We know it is demanding work. It is um, sacrificial work. But we believe it's what you have called us to do. So we put our trust in you, the one who will Sustain us, will provide for us. In Jesus' name, amen.